I can't fix my disease, so I'm going to focus on creating health. And I accidentally fixed my disease, but that was never my intention because I knew it couldn't happen. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, Bettys, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Terry Walls, an autoimmune warrior, if there ever was one. Uh, Dr. Terry Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she conducts several clinical trials looking at autoimmunity, specifically multiple sclerosis, but many others. She's also a patient with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, which confined her to a tilt-reclined zero-gravity wheelchair for four years. Dr. Walls restored her health using diet and lifestyle that she designed specifically for her brain, and now she pedals her bike to work each day. She's the author of The Walls. Protocol, How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine, as well as The Walls Protocol, A Radical New Way to Treat All Chronic Autoimmune Conditions Using Paleo Principles, as well as the accompanying cookbook. Dr. Walls con uh, conducts clinical trials that test the efficacy of nutrition and lifestyle interventions to treat MS and other progressive health issues. Now, if you are a woman if you are a woman or a man uh, who knows someone who's been affected by an autoimmune disease, this podcast is a must listen to. Uh, Terry starts off in our conversation detailing her um, story, which is absolutely uh, nothing short of miraculous, uh, where she started having some of these weird symptoms that eventually progressed to her being in a wheelchair. We talk about the research that she is currently doing. And if you listen to the end of our conversation, if you are interested in enrolling in her next clinical trial, it is now uh, in the next couple of weeks uh, from when this podcast is published, will be open for enrollment. So we'll have all the links and the details for you in the show notes. We talk about her going from kind of like a, you know, we call it a tinfoil hat heretic, uh, talking about um, working on um, lifestyle and diet modifications to being hailed as a visionary luminary in the space. We talk about what autoimmunity is, what an autoimmune disease encompasses. We talk about mitochondria and purinergic signaling and the cell defense uh, and some of the potent roles that the mitochondria have in our immune response. We talk about metabolomics and how dysregulated blood sugar and insulin can also alter 
the progression uh, of multiple sclerosis. We talk about the carnivore diet. We talk about sulforaphanes and the brassica genus, fasting, the ketogenic diet, hormesis, uh, all of these things around uh, helping to um, improve autoimmune symptoms. And then finally, we talk about the microbiome and the gut, the role of the gut and its, uh, its role in autoimmunity. I think this is a wonderful conversation, as I mentioned, please forward this to somebody that you think might benefit. And if you are finding the um, podcast useful in any way, a rating or a review, pretty please with a cherry on top. All right. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Terry Walls. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Terry Walls, we are live and I am so thrilled and honored to welcome you to the Better with Dr. Stephanie podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, I, um, I reached out to you because your story is, well, it's nothing short of inspiring and hopeful. Some, some might call it miraculous. Um, and I think hopefully in our discussion, we'll take away the sort of the magic part of it and like talk more about the signs of why, you know, why, where you are today. And for my listeners who are not uh, familiar with your story, I think that might be a nice anchoring point. Um, we're going to be talking all about autoimmunity today. We're going to have a focus on multiple sclerosis, but there's going to be sort of a broader conversation around uh, the disease state of autoimmunity. Um, so let's, let's start with... Um, I think before your diagnosis is more appropriate when you first started noticing some of the, you know, the aberrant symptoms, like weird stuff that was like, man, this doesn't seem like, like what, what did that look like? And how many years, uh, passed between that and your, and your diagnostic, your, your diagnosis? We're going to give you a, a, a really intimate look at what I experienced. So, uh, 20 years ago. I'm, you know, still athletic. I'm out walking with my wife and my left leg becomes weak. You know, and I drag it, hobble home, see the neurologist. Uh, and he says, you know, Terry, this could be bad or really, really bad. Um, so at night while I'm uh, going through the workup for the next three weeks, I'm thinking about the fact that I've had already 20 years of a progressive worsening of electrical face pain uh, uh, due to trigeminal neuralgia. So I'm thinking, okay, you've got a progressive disease. You don't want to be disabled. I'm praying for a rapidly fatal. Three weeks later, I hear multiple sclerosis. 
you know, and again, I'm a, a, a physician, academic physician, so I s- seek out the best MS center in the country, start the newest drugs, and continue to decline. Now, interestingly, my physician tells me about the paleo diet, uh, work of uh, uh, Lauren Cordain, and after having been a low-fat vegetarian for about 20 years, I go back to eating meat. The next year, I need a tilt-recline wheelchair. We get even more aggressive with my treatments. I take mitoxantrone, does not help. I take Tizabri, uh, you know, the new biologic that you know, is supposed to turn off uh, relapses uh, by 70%, does not help. Uh, I've switched to uh, Celsept. And that's when I go back to reading the basic science because I, I had been reading the literature. And it was just getting me upset when I was first diagnosed. And my wife said, Terry, you got to stop reading. It's just getting you upset. We'll, we'll find you the very best people. So I'm reading basic science. Uh, and I, uh, in that reading, decide that mitochondria are key. I create a supplement cocktail to support my mitochondria. And um, after six months aside, you know, I'm wasting my money at, and stop. But I discover that once I stop, I feel even worse, can't get out of bed. And uh, three days later, my uh, Jackie comes in and says, yeah, honey, why did you take these again? So I start them the next day. What I was, feel can I interrupt you for a moment? What was in the uh, supplement? So cocktail? it was uh, carnitine, creatine, uh, uh, CoQ, hmm. uh, and a B-complex. Okay. And so I, I'm feeling better and I can go to work and I think, wow, that was really interesting. So a couple weeks later, I do the experiment again, wait three days. I, you know, I'm ex- flat out exhausted, cannot get out of bed. And I think, wow, this is really interesting. So now I'm much more excited about reading the basic science and tinkering with what I'm doing. I gradually add more supplements. I uh, then discover a study using electrical stimulation of muscles. Uh, and I ask my physical therapist and we add that. Uh, he calls it E-STEM. My mm-hmm. test session hurts really bad, but I feel incredible afterwards. And plus he, he, he stimulates various muscles in my back, then in my uh, quads. So I've done a half hour of electrically driven exercise. And without the E-STEM, I could only do 10 minutes without being flat out exhausted. So that in itself was interesting. And the euphoria was interesting. My physical therapist said, you know, Terry, it's, it's the E-STEM. It's the endorphins. So for two weeks, I come back and I do uh, E-STEM in the clinic. Uh, um, uh, it, you know, sort of an E-STEM augmented exercise program. At the end of two weeks, it says, okay, uh, I, I've uh, done some research. I found a home, homegoing uh, E-STEM device and I start doing E-STEM at home with a little 10 minute exercise routine that I, that I can do uh, once a day. Cause if I do more, I, I'm too exhausted to go to work. Uh, and then I, at the same time, I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I take their course on neuroprotection, which was tricky because I was beginning to have some brain fog, but I, you know, I slog my way through. I have more supplements, which I've added. And then I have this really big aha. What if I redesign my paleo diet based on now focusing on the nutrients I should get and figure out where they are in the food supply? 
So now I've created this, this, this list of all these foods that I should be eating based on, on the nutrients that the research that I've read said are really vital for mitochondria. And I start this new way of eating uh, December 26, 2007. Now, at that point, I, I want to paint a picture for your audience. I'm too weak to sit up in a regular chair. I have a zero gravity chair where I lean back with my knees higher than my nose. I have one at home, one at work. My uh, university, the VA, the hospital where I work has redesigned my job multiple times so I could keep working. Um, my trigeminal neuralgia has been getting progressively more severe, more frequent, much more difficult to turn off. So the future I see very clearly is bedridden, demented, intractable pain where light, sound, a breeze triggers the pain, talking triggers the pain, swallowing triggers the pain. Uh, and so what I'm doing is to slow my decline because all of my physicians for the seven years that I've had uh, MS and the uh, four years I've had secondary progressive MS have said functions once lost, Terry will never come back. So I, 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 I understand, you know, we're not coming back. I just want to slow it down as slow as, as slow as I can. So I've, I've redesigned my paleo diet. I have, I have more supplements. I'm doing more e-stem and my boss, and I think rightfully so he had, reassigned me to a new job where I'd be staffing the traumatic brain injury clinic as part of a multidisciplinary team. I'd be seeing patients without residence. Uh, as he described the job to me in, in June, I knew there's no way I could physically do the job. But I was starting that job in January. So I was going to be starting that new role in a couple weeks. So, you know, it, it January comes around, I, I go the first two weeks, I'm just going to watch my new partners do their assessments. And I'm, and I'm, so I, so on the third week, so it's the fourth week of this new way of eating. Now I'm examining these folks. I'm getting up out of my wheelchair, doing the exam, sitting back down. And at the end of the day, I think, well, that went better than I thought. And at the end of the week, the first week, I'm like, well, that definitely went better than I thought. And at the end of January, I'm like, I think I can do this. And, you know, my energy is better. From six months earlier, thinking, I'm, I'm going no to have to go on disability, can't do this, started eating this way December 26th. And then by the end of the following month. End of January. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, my fatigue is less. My mental clarity is definitely more. And, you know, my face is feeling better. Um, and then in February, my physical therapist says, Terry, you're stronger. We're going to advance your exercises. Because I'm seeing my physical therapist about once a month. Uh, and so we're advancing my exercises. Um, he uh, has me beginning to lift weights. Yeah, small weights, mind you, but you know, I'm lifting weights. In March, actually, it's probably in February, uh, later February, I, I have my walking sticks in my office and I mail a letter. I walk down the hall 
you know, uh, and man, a lot of people see me walking. They're like, oh my God, Dr. Wallace, you're walking. Uh, and uh, then, uh, you know, spring, I'm beginning to walk around the block. Uh, so I'm now walking around uh, the block. And mind you, <clears throat> when you have a, a secondary progressive MS, you're, you're in a wheelchair and everyone's been telling you that functions once lost don't come back. One of the adaptive things you do is you learn to take each day as it unfolds and you let go of the future. So I, I've made remarkable progress. I'm walking around my little hospital. I walk around the block. It's probably a half mile uh, uh, with Jack, but I'm still living day by day because I don't know what any of this means because functions once lost do not, do not come back. And I um, asked Jack, he said, you know, do you think I could start biking again? He just says, well, you know, if things keep going well, maybe we can try in the fall. Well, two weeks later, it's Mother's Day. And it's a beautiful spring day, and I want to try riding my bike. So we have an emergency family meeting. You know, Jackie, uh, my uh, adult, my, my children who are in high school. When is Mother's Day? I always, is it April? It's May. It May, was May, May 8th. Okay. May, okay. Mm-hmm. May 8th. Um, so Jack says we can try. We get the bike in position. I'm at the curb. Zach, my son's going to run on the left side. Sebby will run on the right side. She'll follow me in the bike. And I push off. And I bike around the block. My, my son is crying. My daughter's crying. Jackie's crying. I'm crying. And of course, as I tell that story, I cry again. Uh, because that was the moment where I understood the current understanding of multiple sclerosis was incomplete. That who knew how much recovery might be possible? So, you know, every day I, I, I go bike a, a little bit further. Uh, I'm doing, you know, more weights. I'm doing more uh, E-STEM. And um, then that October, there's a, a courage ride. Jack and I decide to sign up for it. It's 18.5 miles. And we figure, like, you know, however far I go will be miraculous. Is a win. Yeah. You've yeah. already won. How, yeah. yeah. Right. However how far I go, will be fine. And the yeah. furthest that I've biked at that point was eight miles. So I bike five miles, I lay down on the grass, take a rest. I bike another five miles, take a rest. And so I had three rests, but I made 18.5 miles. So once again, we're all crying. You know, my son's crying. You know, my kids are crying. Jackie's crying. I'm crying. Uh, and how I understand disease and health is completely transformed. How I approach Healthcare in my clinics, in the traumatic brain injury clinic, and in my primary care clinic is completely transformed. And my my chief of medicine at the university, who, who sees me, you know, every couple of years for my, you know, every two year review with uh, how everything's going. When I walk in, you know, the last time he saw me, you know, I was in a tilt recline wheelchair, looking really pretty terrible. And I walk in, he's like, "Oh my God, are you on Tizabri?" And I said, no, 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 I, I'm on no disease-modifying drugs anymore. I, uh, I haven't been on, on anything. And uh, I showed him my e-stim device, uh, talked about what had happened. He's a rheumatologist, and he says, 
we have to get a case report written up, Terry. That's your assignment this year. And then once they do that, he calls me back and says, and now your assignment is you're changing your research. I'll get you the mentors. We're, we're going to have you do a safety and feasibility, see if other people with progressive MS could implement the complicated thing that you did. And if they do, what happens? Uh, and of course, uh, that changes uh, the direction of my clinical practice, uh, the direction of my clinical research, uh, and uh, really the direction uh, of my life in a really big way. Uh, he encourages me to begin talking to the public about what I'm doing with local organic grocers. Now, mind you, at the same time, the other people at the university and the VA who were uh, very upset with what I was doing and, and how to transform my clinical practice. And so, fortunately, uh, Dr. Rothman uh, became dean of the College of Medicine, so I, was, I survived all this, but I took intense, intense criticism. Um, uh, at the VA and at the university. For what, what was the doing. criticism? What was the criticism? Well, so I, I got called in to the uh, chief of staff's office. We said, Terry, people are complaining that you are not practicing the standard of care. And they're very upset. The patients now, are complaining? No, no, no. It was my clinical partners. Uh, and so I brought with me an armful of scientific papers. I, I went through them. I, and uh, in the end, uh, John said, okay, if you hurt anyone, you'll go through peer review, just like we would anyone else. I said, yeah, of course, I understand that. But we have to send you to the uh, university's complementary alternative medicine clinic so you know how to talk about what you're doing when you're giving public talks and in the medical record. Because you could have an anonymous complaint on your license that will have to be investigated probably by people who don't believe in integrative and functional medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want you to learn how to talk about this uh, more carefully, more appropriately. So you're not getting people upset and you're not putting your license at risk. So I, you know, and actually I was like, okay, this sounds pretty serious. So I, I did go meet with uh, the, uh, head of the complementary alternative medicine clinic. And then I, I was very, very careful to always focus on, I am working on creating health, improving your physiology. This is an alternative approach to how you address your current symptoms and your chronic disease state. And if you want management, traditional management for your, uh, that's FDA approved, uh, we'll offer that to you. But if you want this alternative diet and lifestyle approach, uh, that's what I'm offering. And as, as always, once I uh, made that change in my clinical notes, my partners were much more comfortable. And I was uh, always very, very careful in my public presentations. And then as my reputation grew and grew, you know, the, I practically have to check in with my chair at the university to be sure that I was messaging in a way that uh, would not create ire with the FDA. Right. And some, you know, sometimes when you present a compelling case like yours, right, where yep. you have this severe progression of a disease, you know, with, you know, in three weeks, you're in a wheelchair, you have zero gravity, you know, uh, chairs, you're having difficulty, you know, so getting you know. up and getting up and walking around. I think that when you say, you know what, I, 
modified my, uh, lifestyle factors. I changed my diet. Like you can almost hear the hard eye rolls from like these valiant defenders of sort of the traditional medical establishment. Like it's like, there's no evidence to support that. And Oh yeah. You know, the university kept getting calls from people saying you made a, a incorrect diagnosis. She could not possibly have had multiple sclerosis. And so they were like so glad I'd gone to these uh, international MS centers so they could say, well, this is, in fact, it's been validated by multiple centers. Uh, And uh, so my university, my neurologist, my neurology department have been vigorously attacked for what I've had to say because I was creating false hope and they were incompetent because I, I sure, surely never had multiple sclerosis. And then w- when we do all, all these clinical trials, so I've done four clin- prospective clinical trials, all of which have shown people can implement the concepts I talk about and that we're able to show clinically significant, statistically significant improvement in, in, in several domains. So it's not just me. We have you know, peer-reviewed published results. We have, you know, you know, I have tens of, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers who are telling us that they've used these concepts for their complex chronic diseases, many of which I've, I've had to look up because I've not heard of before. And they've had improvement with stabilization of their progressive disease and often with regression of their progressive disease, and that they have improved quality of life, reduced pain, and better function. Right, and I and I think that you know the the I think what's important to highlight here is that all evidence starts with a case study. Right, in this case, it's yeah, a woman that- telling her story, and we say, okay. Let's investigate to see if this signal is strong enough, not just with her, you know, Dr. You know, Terry's story, let's say, but we do a series and see if there's any signal there. And then we progress to higher and higher levels of investigation and, you know, control, let's say, in, in the variables. Yes. And, I, and I think that that is so true. We, you know, we did a case report. Then my uh, chair said, we'll do a case series. We did that. Mm-hmm. Then he said, you do a safety and feasibility study. So it's a single arm. You see, can people do it? Because what I did was very complicated. Uh, did we hurt anyone? The biggest harm was if you're overweight, you lost weight. Uh, and what was the effect size? And the effect size turned out to be really quite large for fatigue, quality of life. And with progressive MS, you expect a 10 to 20% worsening if anyone has any disability uh, uh, year by year. So if you, if we held the group to a stable, as a group, a stable level of walking, that would be stunning and very unexpected, which we did. But half of our folks had clinically meaningful improvements in either hand or walking function. Stunning, stunning because you wouldn't expect any of them to improve. Uh, and that, then we switched over, we started investigating uh, relapse and remitting MS, and we did randomized controlled trials. Uh, and uh, so we've done three of those. Um, we have 
two trials underway right now, and we have a another one that we are soon to be screening for. And what was the lag time, you know, estimation in terms of like your case study to now today where you're running these RCTs? What is the, what is the sort of time so, lapse there? Um, the first study we started in uh, 2010 uh, and we uh, pu- got publication of the results in 2014. Uh, then uh, we, we got uh, um, three, small uh, pilot randomized studies that happened uh, um, in, uh, and those got published in 2017. We did the next larger study, a much larger randomized uh, controlled trial, and that's been the largest dietary intervention study done for MS uh, to date. And of course, uh, that was a six-month intervention. Uh, we had a, a 12-week observation, 12-week intervention, 12-week follow-up, uh, and it took us four years to get that study done. That got published uh, July uh, 2021. Uh, we have a couple studies that are going on now that we'll be analyzing probably this time next year in terms of analyzing the results, and so that will probably get published depending on how, you know, it takes six months to a year to, to get, once you have your data analyzed, written up, and published. Uh, so that'll probably get published in 2023. Doing research is definitely, in, in one sense, it feels like a sprint at the time because you're working so damn hard, getting the money and doing all that stuff. But it's also really an endurance sport. Uh, because human clinical trials, uh, it, it takes a while to recruit, to do the study, analyze, uh, then write up the publication. Uh, the next study that we're going to do will take five years to conduct, you know, another six months to analyze, another six months uh, to find uh, somewhere to publish. Uh, to get it. And so if we're starting now, it's 2028 that those findings will be out. Yeah. And I, and I asked that because it seems like there's a, re- like on average four to five years before a result can be put forward in a way that sort of satisfies some of these higher, we'll call them evidence-based well, critics. Right. And this it, is, that, that's the very earliest. And what they really wanted me to have before I could talk about my experience was Double blind placebo controlled trials, which of course you, you can't really do with. And you can't start with that. You can't start with that. You, you can't you start that. You yeah. case, case series, safety studies, single arm, small pilot studies, larger pilot studies, and then these bigger, um, you know, multi million dollar, uh, two year long studies, which is what I, I'm doing now. And I should also say, the reason I'm able to, to do this stuff is my protocol has touched the lives of people who have economic means, who approach the university and said, we believe in Dr. Walls. Um, I, we see you have uh, a research foundation for her. Um, we want to donate. So that allowed me to do those early pilot studies in that and we received a major gift, uh, which is allowing me to do this study 
that we will start screening, you know, shortly. That that's that five-year study mm-hmm. uh, in the MS Society. When they saw the traction my work was getting, they made diet uh, uh, research a priority. And they also knew that their constituents wanted an answer to the question, walls or swank, which is better. So we did, we did that comparison study. And I, and I think I, I, I bring this up because I think if you had waited um, for four years, five years, seven years for something to be, you know, acclaimed by, you know, your colleagues, you would have been, as you mentioned, demented and disabled. And, you know, so I, I really, I think it's important for us to maybe as a, as clinicians, anyway, there's a lot of clinicians that listen yeah. to this show for us to really take our patients' stories seriously and to maybe not, not disregard because we always need research. This is not the point I'm trying to make, but I think that sometimes you can act on low level evidence, like a case series or a case study, uh, especially when you can see it replicated over time. And I wanted to um, maybe move this conversation. Uh, First, I wanted to ask you, because I know that, you know, you mentioned that maybe the consensus, uh, which is often what happens in medicine, we have sort of consensus medicine in terms of like, Mm -hmm. this is the established standards of practice. And we all adhere to this. We all, all say, I, I, and like, we all agree that this is the thing. And like, there's no deviation from it. And you sort of came in and said, well, I've been doing this electrical stim. I've been doing these studies. uh, I've been, sorry, taking these supplements. I've been, you know, walking a little bit more, feeling a little bit better my energy's better. Um, I, I wanted to ask you how your, um, uh, you know, how people have, how your view or your appearance has changed over time. Because I was saying to you in the pre-chat, I think that you were probably looked yeah. at like a tinfoil hat, this heretic, crazy nut well, person to now, you know, it's like, look at this br- brilliant yeah. visionary who was able to, you know, so I, I wanted you to maybe comment on that. And I know you were banned. Yeah. I know you were banned for a while. As, as a banned speaker, yeah. <clears throat> severely criticized. Yeah. Uh, a variety of people tried to stop my research. Um, Fortunately, my chair had become the dean, so he made sure that that did not happen. Um, I every year there is um, a research days by, for the Department of Internal Medicine, the College of Medicine, and we'd present our data. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Uh, and uh, when we're presenting the videos of the gate changes that we were achieving, and the level of adherence to the dietary changes, the addition of the meditation, the exercise in the stem, people were amazed at one, the adherence, how, how we could radically change people's diets. They were amazed at 
the 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 gate videos that we have uh, uh, remarkable uh, improvements. And, and what was and, changed you know, in the gate? Was it proprioception balance? So every, everything. You know, yeah. So uh, needing a walker, still needing a walker, but now they could they could. It took them a minute and forty three seconds to do uh, a get up and go, to get up, walk eight feet, turn around, sit down. At the end of the year, it took her 42 seconds and she could comfortably swing her legs forward. Nice. One person, uh, uh, we had two individuals that needed walking sticks who were now faster without walking sticks. We had another individual who needed a cane, short distances, walker, long distances, who was now jogging. So, you could see the decreased spasticity, the, the, the better balance, the smoothness of the gait, the increased speed. Uh, and you didn't have to be a statistician. You didn't have to be a scientist to be able to see these remarkable transformations. We were able to show that as a group, they were having a pretty standard American diet at baseline, one and a half servings of vegetables, five servings of uh, grain and dairy a day, and at the end of the study, no, uh, no gluten, dairy, or eggs, the foods we excluded, and eight servings, eight cups of vegetables a day. Huge. That's a dramatic change in diet that was sustained. And from a public health standpoint, if you can get people to have one serving of vegetables more at the end of the year, that's like a home run. So we went from one and a half to eight and, and people were meditating eight minutes a day on average and people these exhausted secondary progressive folks were exercising every day and after I, I don't recall how many minutes we had on average at the end um, I, I think it was 45 minutes you know really uh, quite remarkable uh, the quality of life improvement you know, in five, it's clinically meaningful. So we got 17. Wow. That's, you know, that, that's the largest quality of life improvement that's been reported yet in the most disabled group. Their fatigue, fatigue severity scale score, uh, a change of 0.45 is clinically meaningful. And we got a reduction of 2.38. Incredible. Uh, and then we measured anxiety uh, and depression. Both of those went down. We measured verbal reasoning and nonverbal reasoning. Both of those improved. Uh, and so it is a remarkable transformation. And of course, you could say, well, that was a single arm group. It's not randomized. They got a lot of attention from your team, which, which they did, particularly the first three months less so in the next, next nine months. So then we started doing uh, you know, smaller randomized prospective pilot studies. And then we focused uh, just on the diet. So you were either got the diet instruction immediately or you had to wait 12 weeks to get the diet instruction. And again, we're able to show improved quality of life reduced anxiety, reduced depression. Uh, and uh, it's interesting, better hand, hand control uh, that we could see uh, and better walking endurance. Uh, then we did a study comparing a keto diet to the Walls diet, 
uh, to weightless control. And again, we can show, but, but it's a very small study. Uh, so we didn't reach statistical significance, but, but you know, part of the problem is it's a very small study. But still, we could, we could show both the intervention arms had uh, reduced fatigue, improved quality of life compared to the uh, usual diet arm. So the two arms being keto and the walls protocol, and Correct. then the control being nothing. usual diet, usual yeah. Just SAD. Usual. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's um let let's kind of dig in a little bit to the science. I think this is a really good segue. Uh, we've been talking about spe- specifically uh, multiple sclerosis, which is a degeneration of the central nervous system, the myelin sheath. For those of you that are listening, it's like the fatty covering that helps with conduction and, and nerve signaling. But one of the things that I find, and you mentioned this uh, briefly, is that it's not just MS patients that are benefiting yeah. from this, that you're seeing ha- like other autoimmune conditions, Hashimoto's, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, mm-hmm. and then things that you may or may not consider autoimmunity, depending on kind of what camp you're in, like, you know, FM, chronic pain, chronic fatigue. Um, and I wanted to, um, maybe dig in a little bit to the mitochondria. You have a very, we'll call it a viral Ted talk. Um, uh, I used, when I was in school, uh, you know, we, we learned that the mitochondria, these sort of like mindless, we call them the battery packs of the cell that just pump out ATP. Um, but we now know that of course, um, we were, I was talking to you about this in the, in the pre-chat, of course, through this pure energetic signaling and cell defense response that they have a profound role in immunity. And I wanted you to maybe expand a little bit on what your thinking is around the role of mitochondrial health and the progression of autoimmunity. Well, um, it's really critical for the progression of many of our disease states, autoimmunity, uh, cognitive decline, uh, probably uh, diabetes and heart disease as well. If you can't generate enough energy for the cell to function well, then uh, all of the tasks assigned to that will deteriorate. You know, my my original uh, reading, you know, back in 2004 when I'm in the wheelchair, I, and I'm I'm reaching the conclusion that my, in my case, uh, though I was diagnosed with relapsing remitting MS. I had much more of a progressive, slow decline. Uh, and as I'm reading about other progressive, slowly declining diseases, and all of them for MS, uh, Huntington's, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, um, uh, Lewy body, dementias, uh, the mitochondria were sending signals uh, prematurely to die. And uh, there's a lot of oxidative stress. Uh, evidence that the mitochondria were not generating enough energy. So, hey, what are the drugs? And then I finally gave up on that. So then, you know, I'm starting to read uh, what are the nutraceuticals and supplements that might uh, be helpful. Uh, And as I learned more mitochondria, um, you know, and, and I'm appreciating that, uh, nutrition is key. A lot of our um, prescription medications deplete nutrients uh, that are important for mitochondria. Uh, uh, makes you more likely to have mitochondrial insufficiency. Um, if you have um, a lot of 
toxins, uh, glyphosate, uh, for example, uh, a lot of the insecticides uh, will uh, impact uh, some of the uh, ability of the mitochondria to generate uh, ATP uh, through the Krebs cycle. Uh, and so I keep thinking like, okay, the mitochondria are, are really a key part of uh, cellular biology for us. Uh, and it's probably a linchpin. So I was focused on uh, what are the nutrients that I saw as most critical for effective mitochondrial function. As I got better at that, then I began thinking about, okay, so what does the synapse need? Uh, what do we need for myelin? Uh, so I, I, I began constructing my supplement regimen that way. Uh, and then when I had my aha, like, okay, if I think the paleo, you know, the, the paleo diet spends a lot of time on what not to eat and nowhere near enough time on what to eat. Uh, and so when I shifted my focus on, okay, I should be getting these nutrients from the food. And there are probably thousands of other compounds in the food that I bet will also be supportive to my cellular biology uh, that we've never named, don't understand, don't really understand how they fit in. And, and so you know, when people get, ex I, I see so many folks get excited and say, okay, uh, the paleo diet fixed walls, supplements fixed walls, e-stim fixed walls. No, no, no. It was when I made the shift to, I'm going to focus on maximizing health by getting to what are the foods I need to eat for those nutrients. Yes, I still took the supplements. I'm adding more exercise in e-stim. I'm going back to meditation and I'm focused on I, you know, I can't fix my disease, so I'm going to focus on creating health. And I accidentally fixed my disease, but that was never my intention because I knew it couldn't happen. I've had um, some people on the show, and this is sort of the point of the podcast, is I want to speak to a broad range of people with varying uh, ideologies. And one of the uh, individuals I've had on the show, I know you've been on his podcast, Dr. Paul Saladino, known as the Carnivore MD. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's you know, great. Had a, yeah. had some vigorous debates. And, and what yes. if, yeah. um, so I think that they may have some really interesting insights, uh, but I've, I've spoken with Paul. And I said, Paul, write a case report, write a case series, invite my team to do a research with you. Because right now, I don't have any guidance as to who the right patients are, what needs to be monitored, what are the mechanisms by which your principles are so helpful. And you know what? We will help you. You can reach out. I've got medical students who, are, who would love to help write the case report in the case series. And so far, uh, the various people I've spoken with in the carnivore community, and I keep making this offer, they, they've not been able to organize themselves uh, to do this. And, and you know, and I can appreciate that. It, it is work. It's a lot of work to uh, put together a case report. 
and a case series. It's work to do research. If you don't know how to do these things, it feels very intimidating, uh, which is part of why I, I've said, I have access to medical students and postdocs who, who want to be doing these things. And so we can help if, you'll, if, you'll, if, you want, if you're willing to work with us. You know, and, and I'm not sure what, what the uh, impediment has been. I've been, I've been, you know, my team and I have been talking about this. Uh, we would really like to help them get some case reports and case series written up. I think it'd be very helpful. I do too, um, because I, I, with Paul, I probably agree 85 to 90% in terms of what he's saying. Like we definitely need to be consuming organ meats that I grew up having lots of organ meats, like the bone marrow, liverwurst, like liver and onions. Like I, you know, my mom used to cut, you know, uh, like chicken Friday, hearts. Yeah. Like we, Friday, we had that, 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 that was what you'd have. Right. And I think that that's really becoming more of a, we'll say not a lost art, but a lot more children are not being exposed to organ meats. I think animal proteins are a superior source of the complete complement of amino acids than maybe long-term vegetarian or vegan sources of of proteins. It it can be done. I mean, I, I want to acknowledge for those who are spiritually committed to that. Yes, it can be done but we need to help you do it clinically right. uh, safely to, to do it well. Right. Um, I also want to note, I, I, mean, I had to correct the, the carnivore folks um, on, on a couple of concepts. They were pushing liver very, very hard. And liver is a superfood. And um, the, the, the problem with eating lots of liver is you may develop excess vitamin A in your body. In excess vitamin A, like nearly all of our nutrients have a U shape. Area Not enough. Yeah. Not enough, you're going to be diseased. Too much, you'll be diseased. So acute toxicity of vitamin A is really hard to do. Uh, Polar bear liver is one way of doing it. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, So, but... Chronic toxicity comes very slowly, and you can have uh, fibrosis in the lungs, pulmonary fibrosis. You can have fibrosis in your liver, cirrhosis, and both are fatal, have to be treated with uh, organ transplants. And once you get all that vitamin A in, you can't get it out. So... You know, six to eight ounces of liver a week, plus lots of colorful vegetables, very good for you. A pound of liver every week, uh, I think puts the person at great risk for chronic vitamin A toxicity. And so I've conveyed that to the carnivore community when I have the opportunity to chat with them. Um, And I'm hoping they're, they're... backing off of the 16 ounces uh, a week because i agree 16 ounces a week will not give you acute vitamin a toxicity. It, it will not over years correct you're at great risk for uh, uh fibrosis of the liver of uh, the lungs and potentially of the heart as well 
Well, this is parallel to the LDL argument, right? It's like, well, my LDLs are 400 and I'm fine. It's like, right, this year, but you have that for 30 years and we're going to have a problem, right? So it's like this sort of lifetime exposure that seems to be more important. And I think that's what you're saying. Like, you know, you have an acute consumption of liver, let's say, or, you know, whatever. Um, Not really going to do much. Um, but that it's that chronic low grade exposure that's going to, and sort of getting to the other side of that AUC, that area under the curve where I think we run into, run into issues. It's not enough recognition that most of our nutrients, even water have U-shaped curves. Right. Even water. We can can poison ourselves with water. Right. uh, And, uh, cause pontine myelosis, uh, and, uh, end up in the ICU and die. Uh, so and yes, there are cultures that have survived uh, uh, eating primarily meat or you know, in the Arctic, uh, meat and blubbers. Uh, uh, yes. Um, but that the, the. In the winter. In the winter, it was a very different kind of food than what many of the carnivores are eating now. But, you know, I, I am open to saying they, they may be on to some very interesting new novel ideas. Then please write case reports, case series, so we know who's being helped, what do we have to watch for, and let us do some clinical investigations. Uh, and we've talked about that. We've talked about, uh, you know, I'd be happy to write some proposals for them. We'd be happy to assist with writing a case report or a case series. Um, you know, I, I'm. It would it would be a tremendous service to their cause. Yeah, and, and I think it is really. I think that there is something there because one of the observations I've made, at least clinically, again no RCT, but just a clinical pattern that I've been able to sort of suss out is that when you have a therapeutic intervention of something like a carnivore diet, and there can be many mechanisms for why this is, um, but there does seem to be, at least in the ladies that I've, I've worked with, with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, uh, and maybe this brings me to my next question around metabolomics, but because of the almost no carbohydrate consumption, uh, there does seem to be, and it might be that, it might be, you know, the opportunity to heal the gut, the microbiome, you know, we can kind of get into some of those particulars, but it does seem that a therapeutic intervention, a short delta of a carnivore diet does seem to really help uh, with symptomatic presentation, like the hashies flares that you'll, that you hear about, like if they're exposed to like gluten, let's say. Um, and so kind of the, and so after that, this sort of slow reintroduction of carbohydrates, like from the brassica genus that have, you know, Mm -hmm. this is sort of the point that Paul and I, um, we very politely, you know, acknowledge each other's points, but I do strongly feel that, um, isothiocyanates or like, you know, sulforaphane, uh, containing compounds are very, very important for, you know, and we can go there if you want, but like for liver detoxification, conjugation specifically, mm-hmm. but also for estrogen metabolism, which seems to also be, uh, when we look at hashies, you know, a very direct impact on thyroid metabolism too. So I do think that there's oh. some role there. I don't know if you want to comment on that or. Um, you know, I, I think from an evolutionary biology standpoint, uh, primates were eating lots of plants. We gradually started adding more uh, animal proteins uh, into our diet. But uh, we probably have a far more uh, thousands of generations that were eating uh, omnivores, uh, plants, 
hundreds of different plants in a year uh, and gradually increasing um, amounts of animal protein. All of those plants speak to our genes and influence um, uh, gene expression, influence the NRF2 pathway, the uh, anti uh, 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 the redox uh, uh, pathways, uh, influence our estrogen and testosterone metabolism, uh, in, uh, influence probably uh, thyroid and cortisol uh, metabolism as well. So I, I think they're very, very helpful. Might being only carnivore be also helpful? We don't know. We haven't investigated it. We, we, I, we, have, we have no data other than uh, some clinical experience that the carnivore uh, people talk about, but don't write up. So I don't know how, how to address that. I have had carnivore patients come to me who uh, experienced initial benefit and then decline in their health and are now coming back and we're trying to get them back into right. a uh, omnivore diet. And it's a long transition. It does make me wonder about that U-shaped curve, that there's initial benefit. And I also see vegan uh, people go raw vegan, get initial benefit, great detox. Ketogenic, same deal. A ketogenic, initially great, yep. great response. And then they begin to not do well. And then they come back to me. And it's hard for them to understand that their dietary approach, which had been so helpful initially, may now be part of the problem. Right. And then they think, okay, I just got to do keto harder. I got to be more strict with my veganism. I got to do the carnivore thing back to right when I first started it. And then they continue to get worse and worse and worse. And it's, it's almost like a psycho. It's like a mind game. It's, well, you know? it becomes uh, certainly orthorexia. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 and some people, you know, move on like, okay, I, I, I can't help them. But uh, what's, sometimes helps people understand is when I explain the U-shaped curve for water, mm -hmm. that a nutrient we all know is critical to our existence, water. If we don't have enough, we all know we're going to die. And then when I explain to them, I've taken care of people in the hospital, in ICU, who were going to die because they had a condition that forced them to drink water excessively. And they had too much water in their body, destroying, you know, uh, cataclysmically. So that every compound that we consume has this U-shaped curve. Therefore, for, for some of us, dietary interventions that are so helpful in the beginning, we're addressing those nutritional depletions that we had accumulated. They got us into the middle of the U where we felt great. And then we now are accumulating nutrients and compounds that are toxic to us. And we're going to have to stop consuming those compounds. So we may need to detox from those compounds. I think you can say that for any hormetic stressor. 
I could make exercise sound like a death trap if I wanted to. I could say it causes transient changes in thyroid function, sex hormone uh, metabolism. You could have acute uh, atrial fibrillation and hypertension and even a myocardial infarct, you know, like you can make, it's, it's kind of this AUC that you're talking about. Like there's sort of a not enough is not good. Too much is bad news bears. And we want the Goldilocks, like we want it to be just right. It's like you can say it for fasting and cryotherapy and heat therapy Absolutely. and, you know, what haven't I mentioned there? Fasting and plant consumption and organ consumption. And like you can say it for all of these things. That is exactly true. And, and yeah, actually, I'm very empathetic for that. You know, um, I ran marathons, I competed in Taekwondo nationally, uh, I'm a former athlete. I believed in being very, I'm very intense as a person. So I overtrained uh, um, most of my life, uh, my athletic life. I, I certainly was guilty of overtraining. Uh, and as I was working on my recovery, and I could figure out like I could recover, probably overtrained once again. I bet I would have recovered more rapidly. <laughs> and your body's like, I you had, haven't learned yet. <laughs> I'm going to give you another injury. <laughs> made sure to um, include value rest, which is I did the training. Yeah. Uh, and then as I discovered fasting, got into a three-day fast, five-day fast, seven-day fast, I would not stop my strength training and my uh, hit training. And I finally realized, you know, that is uh, really too much stress uh, on my body. I am 66. So it's like, okay, um, stress is good, but recovery is also really important. Yes. Um, uh, when I was really, I, I didn't value sleep because I had a lot that I wanted to do in life. So I thought four hours was, was plenty. I, I am the same. I, I I was the same. I used to be like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> you know, yeah, like the, you know, and also you have songs that say that say that. You know, you're like, okay, I'll just sleep when I'm dead, and I'll you know do everything I can in the in the waking hours of my and life. Little and, did we know that we yeah. were making that that dead come sooner. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> do you um. Do you think that there's a role, uh, I wanted to ask you about blood glucose, you know, we're talking about keto, we're talking about the Walls Protocol and fasting, et cetera. Do you think that there's a role or a case to be made for uh, aberrant metabolomics in the progression of autoimmunities? So like blood glucose dysregulation, insulin sensitivity. What are your thoughts on that? So um, we're presenting a poster about that very issue at the America's Committee on Treatment and Research and MS. Um, so I, I do think uh, if we look at what are the risk factors that make your disease, and this is for all autoimmune diseases, that make your disease more aggressive, more dis- disabling you more quickly, more resistant to therapy. Having uh, metabolic syndrome will do that. Having any of the risk factors for metabolic syndrome will do that. So elevated glucose, elevated triglycerides, low HDL, uh, bigger belly than your butt, high blood pressure. You have any of those, you're going to have a worse outcome. If you have three of those, you have metabolic syndrome, you're going to have a worse outcome. If you have prediabetes or diabetes, you're going to have a worse outcome. So 
And we know the longer you have your autoimmune disease, the more likely you are to accumulate all five of those things. My thinking is that there's probably uh, metabolic pathways that are uh, aberrant in the prodrome to autoimmunity that also increase the risk for all those risk factors for metabolic syndrome. Uh, And so, you know, I'm talking to my tribe now that if you have uh, an autoimmunity, I recommend that everyone get a continuous glucose monitor for uh, a month to, uh, to see where you're at, measure your belly and your butt, see what your uh, abdominal circumference looks like. Be sure you know your lipids. Uh, be sure you know your blood pressure and a- address that. Many of us, many of us ha- are not as insulin sensitive as we should be. And so, you know, after you know, wearing my continuous glucose monitor, I'm like, okay, you know, I decreased my starchy vegetable consumption. I leaned heavier on the non-starchies. And if I'm having chocolate, it's total eclipse, 100% chocolate, zero sugar. So it's chocolatey and, and really quite bitter. Uh, and, and so you can't uh, have four, fine. you can't have four to 10 pieces of it. It's like one suffices, right? When it's that yeah. sort of strong and it's and that it's, intense, you sort yeah. of like, okay, this, this is a meditative yeah. experience, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, a lot of people enjoy coffee, which is quite bitter. So uh, the, the enjoyment uh, of bitter flavors, uh, that's a uh, cultivated taste. Uh, yeah, and, and I think there's probably uh, uh, altered physiology that happens in the development of autoimmunity that at the same time is putting you at risk for uh, metabolic disruption as well. So if you have an autoimmune diagnosis, you're at significant risk for having one of the five uh, risk factors for metabolic syndrome and having a, a lot of surprise in store for you when you put on that continuous glucose monitor, you realize like, oh, those sweet potato fries sh- shot my glucose up a whole lot more than what I want. So I think I'm going to have kimchi instead. I think there's, I think there's value in also, I, I understand bitter, you know, I, I grew up having lots of bitter foods. Like I love dandelion, for example, mm-hmm. uh, even just like sauteed. And it's, you know, one of those like, oh, throwaway plants, right? It's like, oh, they're weeds. You know, my, um, my mother-in-law will literally like go and pick them and then sort of make, you know, saute them with some olive oil and garlic. And they're, it's just like, just very delicious. Very, yeah. very tasty. Uh, and then you see all of the sort of xenohormetic effects that it has on, in terms of blood pressure and, you know, all, all the things that, um, that bitters can do. And there's been a lot of discussion around the, um, the positive impact that they may have on liver function as well. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's touch briefly on the microbiome. Um, one of the things I've, um, noticed is that, and again, I'm coming back to Hashimoto's cause I know that a little bit more intimately than some of the other mm-hmm. autoimmune conditions. One of the things I've noticed is that there's either me- several of the following, you either have gut dysbiosis, hyperpermeability of the gut, elevated zonulin, uh, production, um, parasitic infection, um, and 
I'm going to be sort of like super honest here. Like you can run the stool tests and you can sequence the microbiome and it's not always clear what the path forward is. Like I feel like it's such a imprecise, maybe infant, like young science. Um, science. Yeah. What, what do you, what are your thoughts on the microbiome and its role in autoimmunity and are there um, sort of best practices, if you will, for helping to heal the microbiome in terms of structure and function? Well, one of my partners at the university is a microbiome researcher. So he and I have this conversation a lot. He, um, we, and we collect poop in our study, so uh, we're going to be writing up our uh, poop discoveries. Uh, and so uh, a couple of things. For billions of years, when we became multicellular, we brought the single cellular and some other multicellular organs into our guts. And they've helped us digest our food, make vitamins, make key nutrients, uh, make neurotransmitters, regulate our immune cells since we've been multicellular. We definitely have a very cooperative relationship with them. Uh, and I would, uh, for all everyone says, oh, we've got parasites, parasites are part of the problem. Well, we also have studies showing that treating with parasites can turn off inflammatory bowel disease, uh, asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, psoriasis, I believe. Uh, and there are a variety of parasites that have been used to regulate the immune system, calm it down, and treat autoimmunity. We also know uh, from some really large studies in China and India, when you give large swaths of the population uh, worming medicine, because large swaths of the population in India and China uh, do have parasites, that you had no improvement in health outcomes. So, you know, I think the answer of parasites are, are uniformly bad, we, we really don't know that. Parasites might be bad for the person and might need to be treated. Yeah. Uh, as that's sort of a case by case study. Which microbes are helpful? I doubt that we're going to ever get to know that, at least in the short term. I think a better way of thinking about this is that over millions of generations, we have had mutations in our genome for enzymatic steps that we can no longer do properly. And that happened in my ancestral mommy and your ancestral mama. But her microbes could still do that step. So at that instant, that enzymatic step disappeared from my genome and got exported to the microbes in my gut. And we've been passing those microbes through uh, the vagina to our children for millions of generations, you know, 200 million years as mammals that we've been doing that. So the question is not which bugs that I have, because the bugs keep swapping their genes around all the time too. So you don't know just because you have that bug, which metabolic functions that bug can necessarily do. What's probably most important is, can the microbiome fill in all the gaps on the metabolic function 
that have disappeared in my human genome. And to that end, a more diverse microbiome will likely be more capable of filling in the metabolic gaps. And that if you have a healthy liver, all the metabolic gaps and stuff that my microbiome is making from the food that I eat that get into the portal vein, go to the liver, and my liver will filter out the not helpful compounds. And we'll let the helpful compounds stay in circulation and fill in all the gaps. To that end, a diverse diet gets a more diverse microbiome, more cups of fermented brassica vegetables will get you a more diverse microbiome, a more uh, uh, fermented milk products, if you're consuming milk, and whether those are nut milks, coconut milks, or milks, and I, and I have a lot of mixed feelings about milk. Milk is a superfood, but once you're past fusing your growth plates, uh, I think there's uh, more hazard than benefits. And that mammals- About 25 doing, years of age is where, when, about yeah. when that happens, yeah. You know, for 200 million years, mammals have used a superfood breast secretions known as milk to raise our young. And when our young were weaned, they never got milk. It's a recent experiment in humanity that have continued that food. Uh, so it's certainly not an essential food. Um, there are aspects of it that, that make it great. And there are aspects of it that uh, have negative health consequences. And they also, we don't see calves, you know, you don't see interspecies milk consumption either, right? You don't have calves, baby cows consuming, I don't know, sheep milk, well, let's say. You know, I, I, yeah, that, that's true. I, I grew up on a dairy farm and every now and then you'd see a cow start uh, um, chewing on the uh, teats of another cow. And uh, then you separate that relationship and sell one cow off. So that will occasionally happen, but I've never seen a cow go after teats on a different species. I mean, I, I, that it doesn't do happen. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't happen. I, I just... Well, we see some strange things on the farm, but that definitely is not one. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm just, uh, you meant just being, I want to be respectful of your time. I know that you had mentioned uh, that you're starting a new research uh, yes. project. Um, and I believe it's like, this is open for enrollment. So if people are looking to, is, is that correct? Correct. Right. So, okay. yeah. So let me explain. This is the efficacy of diet quality of life. Um, we have approval. I, I think we'll be, uh, opening up our screening for this, uh, if not at the end of this week, probably next week, uh, uh, you need to have relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. You need to live within 500 miles of Iowa City, Iowa, uh, and you'll get a baseline uh, set of questionnaires, clinical exam, and a uh, brain imaging using uh, an MRI scanner. You'll come back in three months for a repeat uh, blood work and clinical exam. And you'll come back uh, at two years for repeat clinical exam and MRIs. We'll have um, uh, questionnaires that are done frequently throughout. We'll have three groups, a ketogenic group, a uh, modified paleo group, and a dietary guidelines group. Uh, and 
this will be uh, the longest dietary intervention study that's been done to date. It will uh, have MRIs, very exciting. It's going to have some blood biomarkers, very exciting. Uh, and it's made possible uh, by a philanthropic support from the Chapman Shreve Foundation, uh, uh, which, you know, is actually, you know, it, so I'm very grateful to them. Uh, the university, what, what really elevated my stay at the university is the fact I've had such remarkable success with philanthropic support to do my pilot studies and now this much larger study. Uh, and the university realizes that, you know, I, I, I have the success from grateful patients and grateful people whose lives have been transformed by my work. Beautiful. Well, I will make sure, um, and I'll, I'll get from your, maybe your assistant, like where people, if they, if they meet those qualifications, where they might, uh, sign up for so, that and, or, yeah, or do you, we'll, do you we'll get you, we'll get you the link for that, um, uh, uh to my research lab. Uh, if you go to our research lab, we'll have uh, links for all of the studies that we've got going on. Okay, great. So I'll make sure that those are in the show notes. Dr. Terry Walls, thank you for your contribution to science. Thank you for being someone who's not easily pushed over and told to sit down and shut up. And thank you for continuing uh, the good fight. I really think that your contribution to our understanding of autoimmunity, uh, you know, as a, as a clinician, uh, you know, I followed you for years and, um, I think you've made a profound contribution to uh, both my clinical life, but I know many, as I mentioned, many clinicians listen to this. There's going to be many women uh, who are listening to this who know either themselves or they have family members that have been touched by autoimmunity. It's something that we're seeing more and more and more frequently. So thank you for your presence today, your knowledge. And I know that so many of my listeners are going to find this incredibly, incredibly valuable. Thank you. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.